Section 18 of Italian Hours by Henry James. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Roman Neighbourhoods, Part 1. I made a note after my first stroll at Albano to the effect that I had been talking of the picturesque all my life, but that now for a change I beheld it. I had been looking all winter across the Campania at the free-flowing outline of the Alban Mount, with its half-dozen towns shining on its purple side, even as vague sunspots in the shadow of a cloud, and thinking it simply an agreeable incident in the varied background of Rome. But now that during the last few days I have been treating it as a foreground, have been suffering St. Peter's to play the part of a small mountain on the horizon, with the Campania swimming mistily through the ambiguous lights and shadows of the interval. I find the interest as great as in the best of the by-play of Rome. The walk I speak of was just out of the village to the south, toward the neighbouring town of Larice, neighbouring these twenty years since the Pope, the late Pope, I was on the point of calling him, threw his superb viaduct across the deep ravine which divides it from Albano. At the risk of seeming to fantasticate, I confess that the Pope's having built the viaduct in this very recent antiquity made me linger there in a pensive posture and marvel at the march of history and a pious the ninths beginning already to profit by the sentimental allowances we make to vanquished powers. An ardent Nero then would have had his own way with me and obtained a frank admission that the Pope was indeed a father to his people. Far down into the charming valley which slopes out of the ancestral woods of the Kijis into the level Campania, winds the steep stone-paved road at the bottom of which, in the good old days, tourists in no great hurry saw the mules and oxen tackle to their carriage for the opposite ascent. And indeed, even an impatient tourist might have been content to lounge back in his jolting chaise and look out at the mouldy foundations of the little city, plunging into the verdurous flank of the gorge. Questioned as a cherisher of quaintness as to the best bits hereabout, I should certainly name the way in which the crumbling black houses of these ponderous villages plant their weary feet on the flowery edges of all the steepest chasms. Before you enter one of them, you invariably find yourself lingering outside its pretentious old gateway to see it clutched and stitched to the stony hillside by this rank embroidery of the wildest and bravest things that grow. Just at this moment, nothing is prettier than the contrast between their dusky ruggedness and the tender, the yellow and pink and violet fringe of that mantle. All this you may observe from the viaduct at the Ericia, but you must wander below to feel the full force of the eloquence of our imaginary Papalino.
the pillars and arches of pale grey peperino arise in huge tiers with a magnificent spring and solidity the older romans built no better and the work has a deceptive air of being one of their sturdy bequests which help one to drop another sigh over the antecedents the italians of today are so eager to repudiate will those they give their descendants be as good at the Ariccia, in any case i found a little square with a couple of mossy fountains occupied on one side by a vast dusky-faced palazzo chigi and on the other by a goodly church with an imposing dome the dome within covers the whole edifice and is adorned with some extremely elegant stucco work of the seventeenth century it gave a great value to this fine old decoration that preparations were going forward for a local festival and that the village carpenter was hanging certain mouldy strips of crimson damask against the piers of the vaults the damask might have been of the seventeenth century too and a group of peasant women were seeing it unfurled with evident awe i regarded it myself with interest it seemed so the tattered remnant of a fashion that had gone out forever i thought again of the poor disinherited pope wondering whether when such venerable frippery no longer bear the carpenter's nails any more will be provided it was hard to fancy anything but shreds and patches in that musty tabernacle wherever you go in italy you receive some such intimation as this of the shrunken proportions of catholicism and every church i have glanced into on my walks hereabouts has given me an almost pitying sense of it one finds oneself at last without fatuity i hope feeling sorry for the solitude of the remaining faithful it is as if the churches had been made so for the world in its social sense and the world had so irrevocably moved away they are in size out of all modern proportion to the local needs and the only thing at all alive in the melancholy waste they collectively form is the smell of stale incense there are pictures on all the altars by respectable third-rate painters pictures which i suppose once were ordered and paid for and criticised by worshippers who united taste with piety at genzano beyond the Ariccia, rises on the grey village street a pompous renaissance temple whose imposing nave and aisles would contain the population of a capital but where is the taste of the Ariccia and genzano where are the choice spirits for whom antonio raggi modelled the garlands of his dome and a hundred clever craftsmen imitated guido and caravaggio here and there from the pavement as you pass a dusky crone interlards her devotions with some more profane importunities or a grizzled peasant on rusty jointed knees tilted forward with his elbows on a bench 
reveals the dimensions of the patch in his blue breeches. But where is the connecting link between Guido and Caravaggio and those poor souls for whom an undoubted original is only a something behind a row of candlesticks and of no very clear meaning save that you must bow to it? You find a vague memory of it at best in the useless grandeurs about you and you seem to be looking at a structure of which the stubborn earth-scented foundations alone remain with the carved and painted shell that bends above them while the central substance has utterly crumbled away. I shall seem to have adopted a more meditative pace than befits a brisk constitutional if I say that I also fell a-thinking before the shabby façade of the old Kiji Palace. But it seemed somehow in its grey forlornness to respond to the sadly superannuated expression of the opposite church, and indeed in any condition, what self-respecting cherisher of quaintness can forbear to do a little romancing in the shadow of a provincial palazzo? On the face of the matter, I know there is often no very salient peg to hang a romance on. A sort of dusky blankness invests the establishment, which has often a rather imbecile old age. But a hundred brooding secrets lurk in this inexpressive mask, and the Kiji Palace did duty for me in the suggestive twilight as the most haunted of houses. Its basement walls sloped upward like the beginning of a pyramid, and its lower windows were covered with massive iron cages. Within the doorway across the court, I saw the pale glimmer of flowers on a terrace, and I made much for the effect of the roof of a great covered loggia or belvedere, with a dozen window panes missing or mended with paper. Nothing gives one a stronger impression of old manners than an ancestral palace towering in this haughty fashion over a shabby little town. You hardly stretch a point when you call it an impression of feudalism. The scene may pass for feudal to American eyes, for which a hundred windows on a facade mean nothing more exclusive than a hotel kept at the most invidious, on the European plan. The mouldy grey houses on the steep crooked street, with their black cavernous archways pervaded by bad smells, by the braying of asses, and by human intonations hardly more musical, the haggard and tattered peasantry staring at you with hungry, heavy eyes, the brutish-looking monks. There is still enough to point a moral, soldiers, the mounted constables, the dirt, the dreariness, the misery, and the dark, overgrown palace frowning over it all from barred window and guarded gateway. What more than all this do we dimly describe in a mental image of the dark ages? For all his desire to keep peace with the vivid image of things, if it only be vivid enough, the votary of this ideal may well occasionally turn over such values with the wonder of 
what one takes them as paying for. They pay sometimes for such sorry facts of life. A Cenzano, out of the very midst of the village squalor, rises the Palazzo Cesarini, separated from its gardens by a dirty lane. Between peasant and prince, the contact is unbroken, and one would suppose Italian good nature sorely taxed by their mutual allowances that the prince in especial must cultivate a firm, impervious shell. There are no comfortable townsfolk about him to remind him of the blessings of a happy mediocrity of fortune. When he looks out of his window, he sees a battered old peasant against a sunny wall, sawing off his dinner from a hunch of black bread. I must confess, however, that feudal as it amused me to find the little piazza of the Ariccia, it appeared to threaten in no manner an exasperated rising. On the contrary, the afternoon being cool, many of the villagers were contentedly muffled in those ancient cloaks lined with green bays, which when tossed over the shoulder and surmounted with a peaked hat, form one of the few lingering remnants of costume in Italy. Others were tossing wooden balls light-heartedly enough on the grass outside the town. The egress on this side is under a great stone archway thrown out from the palace and surmounted with the family arms. Nothing could better confirm your theory that the townsfolk are groaning serfs. The road leads away through the woods, like many of the roads hereabout, among trees less remarkable for their size than for their picturesque contortions and posturings. The woods at the moment at which I write are full of the raw green light of early spring, azure vastly becoming to the various complexions of the wild flowers that cover the waysides. I have never seen these untended parterres in such lovely exuberance. The sturdiest pedestrian becomes a lingering idler, if he allows them to catch his eye. The pale purple cyclamen with its hood thrown back stands up in masses as dense as tulip beds, and here and there in the duskier places great sheets of forget-me-not seem to exhale a faint blue mist. These are the commonest plants, there are dozens more I know no name for, a rich profusion in especial of a beautiful five-petalled flower whose white texture is pencilled with hair-strokes that certain fair copyists I know of would have to hold their breath to imitate. An Italian oak has neither the girth nor the height of its English brothers, but it contrives in proportion to be perhaps even more effective. It crooks its back and twists its arms and clinches its hundred fists with the queerest extravagance and wrinkles its bark into strange rugosities from which its first scattered sprouts of yellow-green seem to break out like a morbid fungus. But the tree which has the greatest charm to northern eyes is the cold grey-green ilex, whose clear crepuscular shade drops against a Roman sun, a veil impenetrable, yet not oppressive. 
The ilex has even less colour than the cypress, but it is much less funereal. And a landscape in which it is frequent may still be said to smile faintly, though by no means to laugh. It abounds in old Italian gardens, where the boughs are trimmed and interlocked into vaulted corridors in which from point to point, as in the niches of some dimly frescoed hall, you see mildewed busts stare at you with a solemnity which the even grey light makes strangely intense. A humbler relative of the Ilex, though it does better things than help broken-nosed emperors to look dignified, is the olive, which covers many of the neighbouring hillsides with its little smoky puffs of foliage. A stroke of composition I never weary of is that long blue stretch of the Campania, which makes a high horizon and rests on this vaporous space of olive tops. A reporter intent upon a simile might liken it to the ocean seen above the smoke of watch-fires kindled on the strand. To do perfect justice to the wood-walk away from the Ariccia, I ought to touch upon the birds that were singing vespers as I passed. But the reader would find my rhapsody as poor entertainment as the programme of a concert he had been unable to attend. I have no more learning about bird music than would help me to guess that a dull disyllabic refrain in the heart of the wood came from the cuckoo. And when at moments I hear a twitter of fuller tone with a more suggestive modulation, I could only hope it was the nightingale. I have listened for the nightingale more than once in places so charming that his song would have seemed but the articulate expression of their beauty, and never heard much beyond a provoking snatch or two, a prelude that came to nothing. In spite of a natural grudge, however, I generously believe him to be a great artist, or at least a great genius, a creature who despises any prompting short of absolute inspiration. For the rich, the multitudinous melody around me seemed but the offering to my ear of the prodigal spirit of tradition. The wood was ringing with sound, because it was twilight, spring, and Italy. It was also because of these good things, and various others besides, that I relished so keenly my visit to the Capuchin convent upon which I emerged after half an hour in the wood. It stands above the town, on the slope of the Alban Mount, and its wild garden climbs away behind it and extends its melancholy influence. Before it is a small, stiff avenue of trimmed live oaks, which conducts you to a grotesque little shrine beneath the staircase ascending to the church. Just here, if you are apt to grow timorous at twilight, you may take a very pretty fright, for as you draw near, you catch behind the grating of the shrine the startling semblance of a gaunt and livid monk. A sickly lamplight plays down upon his face, 
and he stares at you from cavernous eyes with a dreadful air of death in life. Horror of horrors, you murmur. Is this a Capuchin penance? You discover, of course, in a moment, that it is only a Capuchin joke, and that the monk is a pious dummy, and his spectral visage a matter of the paintbrush. You resent this intrusion on the surrounding loveliness, and as you proceed to demand entertainment at their convent, you pronounce the Capuchins very foolish fellows. This declaration, as I made it, was supported by the conduct of the simple brother who opened the door of the cloister in obedience to my knock, and on learning my errand, demurred about admitting me at so late an hour. If I would return on the morrow morning, he'd be most happy. He broke into a blank grin when I assured him that this was the very hour of my desire, and that the garish morning light would do no justice to the view. These were mysteries beyond his ken, and it was only his good nature, of which he had plenty, and not his imagination that was moved, so that when, passing through the narrow cloister and out upon the grassy terrace, I saw another cowled brother, standing with folded hands profiled against the sky, in admirable harmony with the scene, I questioned his knowing the uses for which he is still most precious. This, however, was surely too much to ask of him, and it was cause enough for gratitude that, though he was there before me, he was not a fellow tourist with an opera glass slung over his shoulder. There was support to my idea of the convent in the expiring light, for the scene was in its way unsurpassable. Directly below the terrace lay the deep-set circle of the Alban Lake, shining softly through the light mists of evening. This beautiful pool, it is hardly more, occupies the crater of a prehistoric volcano, a perfect cup, shaped and smelted by furnace fires. The rim of the cup, rising high and densely wooded round the placid stone-blue water, has a sort of natural artificiality. The sweep and contour of the long circle are admirable. Never was a lake so charmingly lodged. It is said to be of extraordinary depth, and though stone-blue water seems at first a very innocent substitute for boiling lava, it has a sinister look which betrays its dangerous antecedents. The winds never reach it, and its surface is never ruffled. But its deep-bosomed placidity seems to cover guilty secrets, and you fancy it in communication with the capricious and treacherous forces of nature. Its very colour is of a joyless beauty, a blue as cold and opaque as a solidified sheet of lava. Street and wrinkled by a mysterious motion of its own, it affects the very type of a legendary pool, and I could easily have believed that I had only to sit long enough into the evening to see the ghosts of classic nymphs and naiads cleave its sullen flood 
and beckon me with irresistible arms. Is it because its shores are haunted with these vague pagan influences that two convents have arisen there to purge the atmosphere? From the Capuchin Terrace you look across at the grey Franciscan monastery of Palazzuolo, which is not less romantic, certainly, than the most obstinate myth it may have exercised. The Capuchin Garden is a wild tangle of great trees and shrubs and clinging, trembling vines, which in these hard days are left to take care of themselves. A weedy garden, if ever there was one, but nonetheless charming for that in the deepening dusk with its steep grassy vistas struggling away into impenetrable shadow. I braved the shadow for the sake of climbing upon certain little flat-roofed crumbling pavilions that rise from the corners of the further wall and give you a wider and lovelier view of lake and hills and sky. End of section 18